love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's easy, especially when we think of our neighbors as our friends and family. But what do we do with those people that we really don't know anything about? The Human Family Podcast hosts conversations with guests from local religious and cultural communities to explore a more complex narrative of who our neighbors are in the greater Santa Barbara area. Welcome to the Human Family Podcast. My name is Kenny Chisholm, and I'm your host. This week, I'm joined by co-host Alaa Khan, and we're in conversation with Rene Golan, who is a local mindfulness meditation teacher and a member at Congregation B'nai B'rith, a local Jewish temple. She shares about her connection with the ocean and the mountains and how they have played a role throughout her life. We'll also hear about the Jewish holiday of Sukkot and how Renee finds grounding in connecting with her ancestors and her spiritual community. Ada and I found this conversation to be very pleasant and calming, and we hope that you too will find rest as you listen in. Welcome, everyone. I'm excited to be here today with my co-host Alaa Khan and Renee Golan, who is a meditation teacher in town and a member at Congregation B'nai B'rith, our Reform Jewish synagogue that overlooks Tucker's Grove. Since this is a local-focused podcast, I want to first acknowledge the history of the land that we're living on, which has been stewarded by the Shumash people for thousands of years before it was forcefully taken by European settlers in 1782. We humbly seek to be in conversation with the Shumash today as they continue to lead by an example of deep spirituality and community. Rene, thank you so much for joining us today. Would you be willing to share your preferred pronouns, how long you've called Santa Barbara home, and what excites you about being part of the Human Family Podcast? (laughs) <laughs> so I've been here since in Santa Barbara since 2003 and in the U.S. I've been here for 31 years in California. I'm excited. This is my first podcast ever <laughs> <laughs> and I really love the sound of human family, just those two words. Hmm. What you said in the beginning just brought me already into a spiritual sense of peace, of honoring uh, this place. What's something that you love specifically about Santa Barbara? Maybe a place that locals might know or some aspect otherwise a geographical features? So I absolutely adore the, the fact that we have both the ocean and the mountains, of course. Mm. it's the oceans they reflect within me because I grew up next in a little town that had an had the oceans but the fact that we have the mountains as well and the the sunsets and the beauty also another spot that I absolutely love is the painted cave where you drive up and you can park your car and you're very high up on the mountains and you have a perfect, amazing, beautiful view of all of Santa Barbara. And you can tune in to the stillness of the space and the history of that particular space. And yeah, it's a very special space. (laughs) It just, nature is amazing in this place. Renee, you mentioned at the beginning that you liked the way that Kenny framed the conversation with wanting to honor the place and the land that we're on. You mentioned the small town that you grew up in. I'm curious how your identity is influenced by where you've grown up and where you have lived over your life. Uh, Definitely. So I was born in Casablanca, which is Morocco. And definitely feel like uh, more at ease and connected to places that are sunny. My parents moved to Paris and I lived there for a few years. And then we continue moving on to Israel. And in Israel, I lived in a small town called Netanya. And Netanya is between Tel Aviv and Haifa. And it's on the coast. And growing up in a small town where I would 
either bike or walk places. Everyone I could, I, I basically recognize most everyone's faces just walking the streets. And also over there, you have the beauty of the oceans and nature. And so in Santa Barbara too, you have that feel of small town and community. People are kind of connected to their communities. And that gives me a sense of being anchored and a sense of this is a good place to be in. It's definitely a really beautiful place to be. I was born and raised in Santa Barbara. I haven't lived there for about a decade now, but it was a wonderful place to grow up. You touched really beautifully on the way in which the different places you've lived have this common thread of being by the water and having a small town feel, but at the same time, Morocco, France, Israel, the US, California, they're all pretty different places as well. And you, I love the way you have threaded them together and there seems to be a theme in what draws you and calls you home. Has there been any stark differences in living in Santa Barbara versus these other places? Oh yeah, definitely. As a child, I did not enjoy living in Paris so much. <laughs> For some reason, I, I continued going to France and visiting my brothers, but it wasn't as appealing for me as living in Israel. I think I'm uh, extremely sensitive sometimes to not only the weather of the places, but also the ancient history or the people. So some places, even traveling in Europe, some places I felt more at home than others. What's something that you notice as you recount having traveled to different places, some places that might feel more like home than others, even maybe places that you've never been before, it sounds like. Yeah. As certain places have a sense of home. Can you describe a factor or two that play into that sense? For me, spirituality is a major factor, mm. and family. Mm. So when I immigrated to Israel, it just felt like coming home. It just, I don't know, I think it was on many different levels. And even though I lived for what is now the majority of my life outside of Israel, I still, anytime I go there, it, it just feels on a very deep level that is beyond words, a place that I call home. The language is also something that vibrates with me on a, on a very deep level. Even though French was my first language, Hebrew mm -hmm. is the one that resonates in my heart more than anything. Uh, part of it because I pray in Hebrew, but mm -hmm. part of it just because when I came to Israel, it just felt like coming home, as if I already had lived there before. It's difficult to put into words, but and the, the ancient history, the vibration of the place. And it's also where my family ended up living. So my parents, uh, my sister, and, and so did I. So and throughout the years, I always went back um, once or twice a year. So, yeah, the spirituality is a very big part of my being. And the years that I spent in Israel were the ones that marked me the most in my lifetime. So it was just also those years between being 10 and 21 that I experienced the most highest elevation and, and also some of the most traumatic events in my life. So it ties into not only my own history, but also the history of my people mm -hmm. and the depth of, of what, it, what it feels like to live in Israel or be in Israel to even visit is something that a lot of people who've never been to Israel, they have a hard time explaining and they just get blown away from it, just being there. What is this relationship between spirituality and religion? Because it seems to me that being Jewish to you is very important. And I would think of that as 
kind of a category of religion, but obviously spirituality is something that's very important to you as well. How do you connect those together or are they one and the same? When you say spirituality, it feels like something, it's such a big word. And so those two kind of blend for me because that's how I was raised. Mm -hmm. I was raised uh, in a traditional conservative home and uh, my family uh, goes back generations of people who observed traditions, observed uh, rituals. Mm. And being Jewish was just who I was. There's no question. As a child, I didn't know anything else. I didn't call it spirituality. Only in a later exploration of what was calling me was this sense developed that strong desire to find a higher spirituality and to kind of break some even like some of some of those boxes some of these little small identities that get placed on you and things that as we evolve I, as i evolve as i grow older i want to continue to explore what that means basically and find a place of an open awareness that is a sense of being connected. <laughs> not only to not only connected to my higher self, connected to God, but also connected to the people in my community and connected to the world connected to other people with a sense of equanimity, a sense of respect, a sense of tolerance and making religion something that is easy for me to live, to express, to be proud of, many different aspects of it. In talking about the family that you grew up in, you use the word conservative. Do you mean that in as speaking to like the a Jewish denomination or like or or in a more general sense? Growing up, I there were no denomination in Israel. There was mm-hmm. the Sephardic family I grew up in was observing the holidays, observing. My father was a quiet man who prayed every day and who went to the synagogue on Friday night, on Saturday. My whole family observed the holidays. Growing up in Israel was very different than what it means to be Jewish in America. For instance, the highest, the the holiest holiday on Yom Kippur is something where everything stops everything just especially where i was growing up in a small town you could basically hear a cat walk on the street there were no cars no no, zero traffic all the stores were closed Um, people were walking around in the street with their white shirts and going to synagogue most of them and in my perceptions, it was like a day like no other. It's as if you came into some island and it was so quiet and so serene. And you could just connect with the sense of the holiness of the day. It's hard to describe, but that was part of growing up in Israel, something that doesn't happen here and I still miss it that very deep sense of just amazing quiet amazing holiness in that day specific day I know you said it's hard to describe but you actually I think painted a really beautifully descriptive picture of what that experience was for you and you said it doesn't happen here it doesn't happen in Santa Barbara, California. How have you found a way to translate some of that practice or some of that holiday observation into your life now? 
that specific holiday oh in my own practice of meditation and prayers because i also teach hebrew prayers and i teach also adults hebrew prayers and prepare people for for a few years for this jewish spirituality kind of bar bat mitzvah which is amazing i prepare myself on an inward kind of way so i've taught myself to go on a, in a deep level to a place where i can feel the connection to something that resembles that something that is stillness something that is spiritual and mystical in a way and so i've learned to adjust to just letting the sounds be what they are and to bring about the echo of my memory of what it was like in the back of my mind and just celebrate it in whatever way it happens and every year it's different <laughs> so yeah it seems like the practice of meditation at least in my own awareness has become more popular in the last decade or two and I'm curious, since you're a meditation teacher, do you see meditation as something that's been part of Jewish practice for thousands of years? Or is the meditation that you teach and lead kind of a synthesis of Jewish themes with a more modern understanding of meditation? Uh, so I, I think that our forefathers I have prayed and they have meditated it's just perhaps I think it goes hundreds of years and thousands of years meditation as each meditation has its history and I know that there's a very deep roots of Jewish meditation there's a Kabbalistic meditations and there's the meditation of prayers that are ancestors did and there's the meditation that comes from the chanting of the Torah and the prayers that come in part from the Torah itself. For me, the pure awareness of stillness is something that I absolutely love. And I, I was trained with a Vipassana meditation, which uh, part of it is called med mindfulness meditation these days, but with a teacher who had a very systematic and algorithm and mathematical way of looking at it. And he would explain exactly what we're doing. And so I was able to relate to it and internalize it and bring it in a way that translate to just being present with what is with equanimity. And so when I do just a pure mindfulness meditation, I come from that direction. And if I'm praying, if I'm trying to look into the scriptures or into some rabbi and, and what they taught about meditation, and there's quite a few of them, then I try to understand their meditations. And I read books on Rabbi Kaplan, what he was talking about when he says, this is what Jewish meditation is. And I'm still exploring, basically, ways to tap into these ancient rabbis and their wisdom and how they approached it. And I think it's never going to stop. It's a passion for me. And because I'm so passionate about prayers and meditation, I <laughs> naturally want to experience it with community and share it. You anticipated my next question. I was going to ask you, how are you drawn not only to your own practice of mindfulness and meditation, but also teaching it? And what inspires you to want to create that community? So it's interesting how some people say when you start wishing something and you start having it as a dream, sometimes it manifests. I started meditation with my meditation teacher in, in the 90s. And I've always had this dream of one day going for six months and just devoting that and just stillness and 
exploring meditation on a deep level, how someone who lives in just pure silence and exploring on a deep level. And in uh, 2014, I had the opportunity and someone offered me six months in, in a place in Burlington to explore just that. And my desire came very strongly about not only because I wanted to experience it for myself, but because I've been teaching children for 25 years, Hebrew and, and, and Jewish studies, etc. And it felt to me like over the years, there, the tension span was diminishing. It felt like something was happening in the way we were moving with the internet and with the extreme distraction and a lot of busyness. And that need for me to understand and experience meditation on such a deep level was also that as a teacher, I was feeling this sense of something was happening, something on the level that the world is just becoming a little bit more restless than it used to be. And if we look at numbers and what scientists are saying, definitely there's, there's proof for that. And so my desire is to bring some kind of equanimity into my own life, but also to teach what I'm learning in the process. And that's the only way I know how to, is my very strong sense of wanting to share what I'm learning and make meaning out of it not just for myself, but for others. Anyone who has tried uh, meditation knows that it's a big door into inner self and it has a lot of amazing benefits. And it's difficult. <laughs> it's not all, it's a difficult process, but it's worth it. In going to Congregation B'nai B'rith, I've learned well many things about Judaism, but two concepts that have stuck with me are these two ideas of tikkun olam and tikkun adam. And from what I understand, it's tikkun olam is the repairing of of the world, of creation, and tikkun adam is the repairing of the person. And meditation to me in my practice, a practice of prayer and meditation, is something that can be so healing, like you mentioned. And it helps me not only feel a sense of peace and purpose within myself, but I also feel more ready to show up for the people that I love and to show up for causes that I care about in the world. And that kind of shows this bridging between the repair of the person and the repair of the world. I grew up in an evangelical Christian tradition, and obviously part of that is this idea of good news. And I'm curious to hear about your journey with meditation and how when you get a, a taste of healing and of deep peace, you kind of want to share it with other people, just like you were saying, to be a teacher. But obviously it's not something that you can force. It's not really something you can say, You should. everyone should be meditating. <laughs> get in here. How do you, how have you navigated that relationship between dearly wanting people to experience the goodness of a meditative state of a connection with God, connection with themselves, and also knowing that it's not something that can be pushed? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. That's a great question. I liked what you said, tikkun adam and tikkun Olam definitely has many different levels. Tikkun Adam is a very strong desire that I've had from a very young age. And I remember some transcendent kind of feeling just floating in the ocean as a young at a young age. But I also remember my parents praying for peace constantly just because we were living in a country that was at war and this became something that was very strongly implanted inside of me as well because everyone was praying for peace and repairing the world doesn't have doesn't have an end it, it just you start and you do whatever the best you can 
<laughs> and when I teach meditation, every time I taught it, I just try to be as authentic as I can uh, with my own meditation. I, t I tune into my own body and whatever wisdom I'm able to, I just let the words come out from my own knowledge. And everyone who's sitting there has had a different life, a different life has had a different experiences and everyone is going to hear me and it's going to resonate in a different way. They're all going to take from it, whatever they take. And it's the same when you have a conversation with someone. So all I can do is hope that to be as honest as I'm trying, as I usually am, just to bring it forth and hope that it will be well received. And sometimes we also remember something later after the meditation. So there's sometimes a value there. That's all you can do is in whether you're uh, having a conversation with a friend or uh, bringing some kind of meditation. You tune into your own heart and you tune into the silence and you just just let go of the rest you do your best and you let go of the rest when a person meditates in a retreat there's a lot of noise and when the teacher teaches sometimes you people fall asleep etc it's just people will take whatever they'll be able to learn and understand and hopefully just get something out of it i appreciate the very human core that that underlies your answer just this sense that we can kind of trick ourselves into thinking that people are something that we can change or in some way like conquer even if it's with intent that they would feel peace <laughs> but your commitment to living in your heart and saying this is a person i want to listen to where they're at and certainly they'll learn from me but i'll also learn from them and that's it can press against perhaps a desire for change now, for urge in it. When we feel that the need for change is so urgent, it can be difficult. But at the same time, it seems that the most effective way to build a better world is to live from that human place. Yeah. That's beautifully said. Thank you. Is there uh, a tradition or practice within your culture that most Santa Barbara locals wouldn't know much about? but points to a greater theme within your community, any special like holiday or daily practice or community event? So one of the holidays that a, lo a lot of people don't know about is called Sukkot. Sukkot is a celebration that comes after the high holidays of Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. Those are, uh, sometimes get announced even on the news, but Sukkot is a, a celebration of uh, seven days where some people build up, they build this little hut in the balcony or in the backyard. And it has to have an opening on top where you can see uh, the stars. It's a temporary shelter and it reminds us of the dwelling, the temporary dwelling of the people that came out of Egypt, the Israelites. And it's uh, very dear to my heart because for me, I used to celebrate it as a child. But I think in Santa Barbara, a lot of families started observing Sukkot because they found it so uh, unique and exciting holiday to celebrate with children. So you basically build this little temporary kind of little home and you invite your friends, your family, and you celebrate it with meals every day. And there's like certain custom of shaking what is called a lulav. A lulav, it's, it's like a, it looks like a spine. It's a palm front and it makes a noise like a rain. 
and you smell the atrog, which smells like a citrus kind of. And the tradition is also not only that you're inviting your friends, your family, and you're having meals every night, but also you invite what is called Ushpizin, like your ancestors every night, a different ancestor. It can be Abraham or Sarah or Jacob or Queen Esther and so on. And it's very unique in this way that you're basically bringing this mystical tradition of inviting the ancestors and inviting their presence and connecting that way to your ancestors and connecting with family and sharing a meal. Thank you for sharing that. This past Sukkot, I actually built a sukkah with my housemates in our backyard, and it was a really special experience. It was actually not the first time I've built a sukkah. We built one in Santa Barbara years ago, but this one was special this year because we were able to use this space in COVID times to have like socially distanced gatherings in our backyard with some friends, which was really nice. And for me, what really resonated about what I learned through my housemate who was Jewish at that time was this reminder to rely on God and that our physical possessions are temporary. That really resonated with me in such a tumultuous time that we're living in right now. It felt really special to reflect on the things that are set and to distance oneself from our physical home and our physical possessions and the historical context for that. And we did some ancestral sharing as well as a house. It was a really special time. That's wonderful. It's also in the Jewish tradition, like this a shifting of going from one holiday, which is very introspective, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, and then right after Yom Kippur, maybe two, three days later, you're supposed to build the sukkah. And it just gets you into a rhythm of the year that takes you from one joyful holiday or not so joyful to another, but brings all this tradition and makes them part of your life. And when everything in life becomes like just a busyness of running around, you're having a celebration that connects you with family, with your ancestors. And I think it's important to have these kind of customs and this kind of observing holidays that are important. It occurs to me that making something that you know is temporary can be a spiritual practice in and of itself, even as oftentimes when we move to a new place, maybe actually if we're talking about a dwelling or if we're entering into a new relationship, entering a new job, we want to hold on to it. We really want to say, okay, finally something that I can land and not have to worry about moving again, whatever it is where we seek that really a more permanent, solid kind of foundation, something that will be, yeah, consistent in our lives. And it seems to be a spiritual practice to admit that things are always changing in life. And as much as we try to control things, even people who have the most wealth and resources in the world can't control everything. <laughs> and there will always be things that are going to be outside of our control. And yeah, it just makes me think that putting time into a temporary dwelling, knowing that it's temporary. There's something that seems powerful about that as just a practice in community saying, we're going to do this thing and we'll build this shelter. And then at some point it's going to come down, but with the community connections and relationships can continue on. Definitely. Growing up during the war, I lost one of my brothers who was 21 at the time during Yom Kippur in 1973. At that time, I was only 13, and it affected my family in a tremendous way. And part of, when you're talking about control, part of my own journey and my own story was that at the time, I didn't even recognize how much it affected me. Because in Israel, not only my whole family, my parents, they cried for years. In Israel, you go every year to the cemetery and they shoot the guns and you hear like it's a whole observance of like a memorial day for the soldiers, etc. 
So I think sometimes things get buried inside of us, especially as children, you don't even know how to deal with something like that. And that for me, it took me a long time to recognize how much it affected me on a deep level. There was a lot of suffering that was underneath that affected my life as an adult. And I think that's part of why I uh, basically started to meditate. That's a, one, a major part. And so for me, the holidays and the religion and the meditation, they all combine, they all come to form this like structure support that I know things are going to happen. People get sick, you lose friends, you lose family members, etc. But you have to continue to strive to build resilience. You have, we all have to continue to adapt to change, to find ways to not only support ourselves, our community, and the new generation. And so, yeah, that's kind of connecting a little bit to what you were saying is these facets of life where you build resilience and you're also celebrating your spirituality, but you don't get stuck. You know, you don't get stuck in, oh, no, this is not for me, or I don't understand. You ask me, what part is your Judaism and what part is your spirituality? Where I think this is a question that everyone should ask themselves. What is my spirituality? And some people, they don't care much for spirituality, and that's fine too. But it feels like a lot of things are changing in a faster and faster way. And for me... When, my, when I was growing up, my father would bless me every Friday night. And that's these rituals that I want as a teacher to pass on to the parents that are not, they don't know about this custom or to make sure that I can share that how, what a blessing it was for me in my life that people need to bring some kind of customs that are going to work for their family, for the children, to give them some kind of anchor in life. When you mentioned the in inviting ancestors as part of the Sukkot practice, is it inviting mostly the ancestors that we see in the Bible? Or would it be anyone that we know that no longer is living with us today? Would you invite the like the spirit of your brother into that? Ah, that's an interesting question. I think that would be depending on the family who's doing it. We have certain traditions, but they're not set in stone. Traditionally, the people who are celebrating Sukkot might invite King David or Sarah or biblical figures, mm -hmm. but it's definitely amazing to also talk about someone who has passed on and to celebrate because that's how they, they come back alive. That's how they're not forgotten by the fact that talk about them to, to your children who might not ever have met them and so on. You mentioned a few times the importance of tradition and carrying on, and I'm curious to know a little bit about the blessing that your father did for you on Fridays and also maybe what your sukkahs have looked like so I can get like an idea of because I know you said that there are traditions but they're not always set in stone so every family lo looks a little bit different and I'm sure they've looked different in Israel and Santa Barbara and France and Morocco so I'm curious yeah. to get a little more, more of a picture of what that looks yeah. like. So this past Sukkot in Israel People were building Sukkot in their balconies, right? Because they were all not able as much to gather with families. There was this thing where in all of Israel, they decided on a certain hour, certain neighborhoods where they're all going to go outside and they're all going to sing 
together and all in the balconies. And that's what happened. That was, I got chills. The whole neighborhood comes outside and celebrates just by singing that it's at a certain time. My father, may his soul rest in peace, he used to bless me every Friday night that you bless your children that they may have the quality of some of our biblical ancestors, that they may, may be in peace, that they may become people that are a blessing to be around. And the fact that the parents do this from when the kids are young every Friday night, if they choose to make it a custom, brings this very unique reinforcing of the relationship between the parents and the children. So the, the, the children, they know the parents love them and they know they're blessing them. And saying a blessing is so powerful because I mean, who here uh, hasn't had a bad day where you go somewhere and someone is just asking you, how are you doing? Or saying, may you have a, and they send a blessing your way and it can make a, a big shift. It can make all the difference. And so realizing for the children that they are blessed and for the parents themselves, just get into the tradition of saying a blessing is extremely powerful. I think you're right. It does make a big shift when someone says, have a blessed day. And I think it's very common in my tradition. When people are around Muslims, they always tell me, oh, it sounds like you're all praying for each other all the time. That's because we are. We're always blessing each other and wishing each other well. And anytime there's news, good or bad, there's like a reflection on like that it's within a larger context that this is happening, that there's a higher power, that there's not just us as individuals. So we always wish each other well. And so I, I love to hear that reflected in other traditions with prayers and, and we can pray. And, and just you saying that we realize there's a higher power. I mean, in, in so many religions, that's what we celebrate. We're celebrating that there is a higher power and it's a universal, universal God. And sometimes if we don't feel like it's there it's because often it's I don't know I, there's something so just bringing that belief is reinforcing that faith giving a faith to children it's like giving them the strongest gift you can give them because uh, we're all at, at one point or another going through hardship and we can all use that kind of faith and science proves that praying for others <laughs> makes all the difference so I, I love looking into science and neuroscience to get that reinforcement yeah it's not surprising when we see that the rituals and the traditions and customs that have been held on to for hundreds or thousands of years actually do some good. <laughs> it's, it, can't, it can't be that surprising to us, right? There's a, there must be some reason why people have carried on certain things and maybe left certain things yeah. behind. So. Sure. Yeah. I'm looking at my window and seeing that the sun is going down and I'm aware that it's Shabbat. And I'm wondering what kinds of practices or rituals surround this time of week for you? So for me, I start being happy on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> I start being happy on Thursday because Shabbat is like, it's beyond time and space. It's something that is hard to explain. It's, it vibrates inside of me from a very young age, all the senses and the spirituality gets elevated. The Shabbat itself is like you're walking into a place that is hopefully full of light and peace. And there's some ritual of lighting candles and sometimes having friends over, family. I always cook ahead of time because I don't cook on Shabbat. And... I prepare everything I can at home so that I don't have to to deal with it on Saturday. And usually I before COVID, I go to the temple. And this connection of studying Torah and reading and immersing myself in the prayer service is always 
working like magic. It's 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 part of it is songs, part of it is silence, part of it is learning, part of it is like going back in time. Like you're basically reading a text that is ancient and you're also mm. learning from not only from your rabbi and your community, but from the rabbis that have been so amazingly wise and connected on a very deep level and have written books that are just out of this world. And every Shabbat is different. Every week is different. It's always a different Torah portion. And if Shabbat falls on a different holiday, then... And sometimes there's double the joy, you know, it's like, mm. it's Shabbat and it's Sukkot or something like that. So I could talk about it for a very long time. It's very special. Plus, you're not working, you're not cooking, you're not, it just becomes a day of rest. I've been in the practice of observing Shabbat for the first time in my life this last year because my housemate is Jewish. And I've just seen how special Shabbat is to her. And being able to join in that practice has been really nice for me to, to reorient the way I see the week. And I also see how much, so my housemate is Mizrahi Jewish and um, from Israel, actually. And I see so much about how her Mizrahi identity influences her practice in general. And you mentioned in passing um, that your family is Sephardic and your born in Casablanca, and I'm curious how your identity as being Sephardic influences your practice, if at all. That's interesting. Um, I would say during the holidays, it does. And in the foods that we, that I cook, or in the tradition that I observe. But because I live here in Santa Barbara, and I've been living in the U.S. for such a long time, I think in the way I practice and during the holidays is when it affects me the most is just because there's a memory that is present from growing at home and the way my family practiced. I'm just realizing that those who might be tuning in to listen might not know what Sephardic and Ashkenazi and Mizrahi identities actually mean um, it might be useful to maybe tell us to give us like a short definition just for those who may be unaware of that terminology oh. certain countries are Sephardic and certain countries are Mizrahi and then mm -hmm. Ashkenazi but the specific countries is something that Ashkenazi would be more like a people from Poland and Russia and, and Germany, etc. Sephardic are more like a Moroccan and people that come from Spain and things like that. Mizrahi, yeah, I would have to look it up. What countries is Mizrahi? It's more... It's, they're, they're closer to sporadic, yeah. But as far as I understand, Mizrahi refers to those in the Middle East, Jews from the okay. Middle East, as far as yeah. I understand. Yeah. Okay. And obviously there's a historical relationship, from what I understand, between Sephardic and Mizrahi Jews, and obviously being exiled and being persecuted and then having to move and stuff has influenced a lot of that relationship. That's I, my I, understanding. Yeah, and I do know that my ancestors came, they were, they lived in Spain and some of them in Brazil, some of them in Italy and so on. So there's a lot of movement in, in that history, for sure. Thank you for clarifying that. Renee, this has been such a peaceful conversation. Oh. I have so appreciated your thoughtful responses. And in some sense, it, it's evident that you're a meditation teacher, because I can tell that you're feeling through your answers as you speak them, or as you respond to them, or at least someone who is experienced in a meditative state. I usually ask our guests to give us a blessing at the end of our time together. And because many of our guests are, are clergy, and I was wondering that as we enter a time of Shabbat, a time of weekend, of rest, or whatever else our listeners might be heading off into. Certainly, 
a sacred moment of either connecting with ourselves, with the world, with God, with other people. I was hoping that you might be willing to send us out with a brief meditation for all of us neighbors here in Santa Barbara. Great. Okay. So we'll take three deep breaths. <laughs> I pray that um, we can all come to a place where all that divides us will fall apart and will no longer be there. I pray that each person will be guided by their heart and their soul and their highest self. I pray that we can leave to our children and our grandchildren a world that is going to move towards peace between all nations and that we are able to take care of this planet. I pray that we can all tune in to the sense of Shabbat, which is always present underneath all the noise and all the fear. And we can let go of the fear that divides us, that we can respect each other and honor each other. And understand that God is transcendent, that God is universal, that God is something we cannot even describe, that is, He's the Almighty One, that we can all tap into the sense of peace, the sense of shalom, of being whole. Amen. 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 Thank you, Renee. So wonderful to be with you today. Thank you. I'm honored. Thank you very much for so allowing me to be here with you today to interview and yeah thank you for sharing a little bit of yourself with us and all our listeners i'm sure everyone will um enjoy that conversation and that meditation that was beautiful thank you and i'm glad that i'll have another friend at the the, the temple as well that's always exciting <laughs> thank you yeah, that's true. I think Kenny and I have both attended like quite a few services there. It sounds like really amazing services. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, a beautiful community. Thank you. All right. Well, Shabbat Shalom to you, Renee. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> and we will connect in the future. I'm sure. I look forward to that. Thank you. Lovely to meet you. Thank you. Bye. Lovely to meet you. Thank you for joining us today for our conversation with Renee Golan. I especially appreciated the reminder that taking the time to pause and step away from everyday life is an important part of spiritual rejuvenation and something that is built into the Jewish tradition with Shabbat. Next episode, we will be having a conversation with Nikki Ramage, who is an associate pastor at the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara. Please subscribe to our podcast to see our latest episodes each week and share it with your mom, your roommate, your neighbor, or even your dog. And as always, feel free to reach out to us at thehumanfamilypodcast at gmail.com and follow us on social media to get highlights from each episode. <laughs>